Well, we have a lot going on, don't we? Amazing. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Put your hand on your heart. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, and we ask you to speak to us this morning. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to whisper into our hearts the things that you have to say to us. Please don't let my words get in the way. Amen. We are uh, going through the story of the scripture. Today is, uh, we're, we're going to be going through the, the story, of, was it chapter four, I think, um, the uh, um, Ten Commandments and stuff that happened at Mount Sinai. Um, so we are going to start, I think this might actually be the last one, unfortunately, that we'll be able to do, but we have a Bible Project video this morning, and they're progressively making more of these as they go, but um, the rest of them, actually, they, we'll come back to them in the New Testament, but I think this is the last one we'll use for Old, Old Testament. So let's do it, the Bible Project. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence presence, they had this close relationship with him and it was good. But humanity rebels and the relationship is fractured and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations and that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them and it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. That it includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And, and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really 
really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me and don't worship idol statues. Right, and so here we are, immediately after agreeing to the covenant, they're throwing this ritual party, they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what, this is, this is not gonna work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something. Yeah, it does seem odd, but this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions, and he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises even though he knows it's going to cost him. So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it, and in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. Aren't those just so cool? Just can't get over them. They're just so concise and vivid. Um, they're, uh, you can go to jointhebibleproject.com and see more of what they have. The Leviticus video, I don't think, I don't think we're going to show that one next week because the next part of the story goes into the wanderings. It doesn't stay in Leviticus. Um, but I encourage you to jump on and watch that. It's one of the, the clearest explanations um, that you will ever see um, about the ceremonial law and sacrifices and all that stuff. It's just beautifully done. Uh, so there is uh, the story of what we're dealing with uh, right now, and I, I want to jump in, uh, uh, sort of jump off where we were last week. Last week, we talked about how God dealt with the gods of Egypt, and uh, this, this morning, uh, we're going to go the, the next step on where he took these people and uh, hopefully see something about the gods of our own age today. Um, so... Let's pick it up here. After the Red Sea, the, the children of Israel are um, dealing with a bit of a, a, a difficult psychological mindset and that they've been slaves their entire lives and it's hard for them to have any optimism or uh, you know, to really believe that this God who called them out might actually have good intentions for them. We see very quickly they uh, uh, get hungry and they get thirsty and they get upset. And the Lord acts, Moses gets really ticked off, um, but the Lord's not ticked off. He's actually very gentle and, and uh, you know, he's taking them one step at a time. He says, 
to the, the people. They're hungry. They have nothing to eat. They're in the middle of the desert. Now, you're dealing with a whole lot of people here, by the way, somewhere between half a million to three million. Like, we, you know, you don't know. But this is a lot of people uh, with no infrastructure whatsoever. So you can understand the bit of panic that might be arising. And uh, so God says this. Okay, I'll give you cornflakes. Did you know this? The word manna actually means cornflakes. Perhaps not. Perhaps not. They, uh, he, he, he gives them food. He tells them, I'm going to give you food in the morning. And you're going to wake up, and it's just going to be there. You don't have to plant it. You don't have to bake it at 375. You don't have to do anything. It's just going to be there. And so they wake up, and so somebody sticks their head out of the tent and go, uh, and they pick it up and go, what is it? And then someone goes, I don't know, but that's a good name. What is it? Manna actually means what is it. That's actually the name. What is it? And so they're all looking at it. Maybe they're thinking about when Moses had told them that God's going to give them food. And somebody, that's probably a 10-year-old boy, they got to try it. They're like, eat it. (laughs) Because 10-year-old boys will eat anything. And so somebody puts it in. They're like, you know, it actually isn't bad. And they eat, and they're full And the instruction comes, says, gather as much as you want for today. How much will you eat today? Gather that much. But don't gather any for tomorrow. Interesting. Because you're in the desert, right? Like, and there's no, you don't have a refrigerator or anything like full of, you don't have any source of food. But he says, don't don't save any. So they eat and some people, of course, go against those instructions, and they get a pot full of what is it for tomorrow. Big mistake. Middle of the night, they start to smell it. It rots quickly. The worms, the maggots all find it much more quickly than they would have ever dreamed. And they have to go and dump out all their what is it. They probably had to dig a little hole and dump it in there because it's so nasty. Now, isn't that cruel? Actually, no, because God told them, don't gather it for tomorrow. And they wake up the next morning, and guess what they have? They have fresh, what is it? It's here again. Well, isn't that something? I can bet the first people who tried to store it didn't try it that next night. You see, only gather how much you need for today, and then tomorrow, what are you going to do about tomorrow? You can't, I guess you're just going to have to trust me. I think that's the message God's sending. So they start, people stop trying to gather it. Well, then you get to the Sabbath. And here God says, I don't want you actually to go gather any, what is it on the Sabbath? Um, I want you to gather two days worth the day before. Huh? And you've got little Timmy, the first guy to try it and storing it. Oh, I, know the, I know the ending to that story. I am not saving any for tomorrow because that stuff goes bad quickly. Yet for some reason on the Sabbath, everybody wakes up and their what is it is still fresh. It's like uh, uh, Krispy Kremes. You know how like, they still taste fresh the next day? It's true. True story. No? No? Sorry. Come on. Tough crowd this morning. Just a donut, guys. So somehow... It, it still is maintained. And the message is clear. God is just saying, just trust me. Just trust me. And you can only trust me one day at a time. You can only trust me one night at a time. But just trust me. Come on, it's okay. Take my hand. It's okay. You see that? He's showing them his word is something they can count on. 
Now they get, and they're thirsty. You would have been thirsty too. I would have been thirsty too. I want to throw stones at these guys for being so immature and all these things, but they don't have the full view that we have today, and they're in the desert. So you can understand a little bit of panic rising, maybe not the accusations, but panic. And Moses says, God, get me away from these people. And God says, it's all right, just take your stick, hit that big old rock up there, and water comes out. Probably would have had to come out and be like a lake, essentially, for people to gather around and drink. Amazing. And God says, will you trust me? That's what's going on here. He's showing them, before anything else, that they can count on what he says. And then he brings them to the foot of this mountain. And at the foot of this mountain is fear. (laughs) Because at the top of the mountain, God comes down in fire and lightning and the earth is shaking. And then he proceeds to give them these, the Ten Commandments, which we have all known so well. No other gods, no idols. Honor his name. Honor the Sabbath. Honor parents. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Now, laws in general, when connected with God and church and all these things, get a bad rap nowadays. And there's a couple of reasons. One is because people go, yeah, but grace is better than the law. And it's like, well, yeah, of course it is. The law can't bail you out when you've broken the law. The law cannot save you. So, of course, grace is better. But does that mean that the law is somehow bad? We're really afraid of legalism. Uh, And I think it has to do with us not understanding the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to protect, not to save. Okay? The purpose of a saw is to cut, not to pound nails. That doesn't mean the saw is bad. It just means don't use it as a hammer. Are you with me? So, I think the other reason that we don't like law or the word is because we're too afraid of being associated with these guys. Yeah, this is unfortunate. Because sometimes when you mention law, you get these kinds of reactions. And forgive me, I've told this story before, but this is always so fresh on my mind when I discuss this topic. I was working for years down in Youth of the Mission in Tyler, Texas. And I was uh, sort of the, the assistant director or something. I was sort of the right-hand man for, for the, the director, Larry Allen, who knows the Lord, studying his word for years and years, and a wonderful, godly man. And uh, we decided it was, it was an 11-month training program for missionaries coming off the field. And so we would teach them and equip them about the word of God and send them back out. It was a wonderful, cool thing. And uh, so we had lots of teaching uh, opportunities um, and there was a man who had been connected with our ministry many years before, and he showed up and said, hey, I'd love to come teach sometime. And so Larry said, here, why don't you teach on this? We're going through talking about sin and repentance and all these things. Why don't you take this subject of repentance? Well, he did, and he came in, and uh, um, I remember it very clearly. Actually, I don't remember anything very clearly except for the spitting. There was spitting and yelling, that took place. And I, I, I remember all my attention being focused on the lapel microphone. As one of the leaders of the school, we were always dealing with the stinking microphone, which would, you know, 
act up. So we had just got a brand new one. It was like a $400 one. We should have got one of these, but maybe this was too long ago or something. And he's yelling and screaming. I'm telling you, he's spitting. He's going like this. And I'm like, he's going to drop the mic. He's going to drop the mic. And sure enough, I'm like, oh, stop. Stop. This is painful. This is painful to watch. So Larry and I do what you should always do in a situation like this. We stepped out to get a cup of coffee. In retrospect, we might should have stayed in there, but it's okay. They're big kids. We, wa- we walked over to the office. I'm about to confess something here. We're a family, right? I remember getting a cup of coffee and pouring powdered creamer in the cup. I'm sorry. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, and the Lord is gracious and compassionate. In the styrofoam cup. No, 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 no. Love you guys. Thank you that it let me share that. <laughs> I'll never forget in this, like we're hardly talking, Larry and I, because we're both just like, this was a mistake. We shouldn't have had this gentleman come. I'm sure he's a great man, but wow. So I'm watching Larry. He's like the absent-minded professor. He'd just like do this, and his head would be up, and like he's got like one eye open, and he's pouring creamer. And he goes, you know, I said, what do you think? Dumb question. He says, oh, he's Frankenstein up there. I'm like, I know, I know. Ah! And Larry says, you know, people need to understand that the law of God and the love of God are really the same thing. Now, don't take that overly, in an overly literal way, okay? He didn't mean it in an overly theological way. Because the love of God is big and encompasses much more than just the law. But, listen to that statement. The law of God and the love of God are the same thing. Why do we make this separation? Why do we think that when you're talking about law, suddenly you have to get ticked? Seriously. Where does that come from? Well, I don't know. Somewhere along the line, that's what this, this has been the image, that whenever you talk about what God says or his commandments or repentance or any of these things, you're supposed to try to rain down fire and brimstone, and that's just not true. So here we go. Why then? What is the deal with God's law? I suggest to you that Larry was exactly right, that God's law is a facet of his love and nothing else. This is a law that you see Here's the good people at Greenbrier International Incorporated made this coffee mug. And there's a law on there that you can see, actually two laws, hand wash only and do not microwave. There's also a made in China, but that's just an FYI. It's not a law. (laughs) Do not microwave. Now, I know this is harsh and a judgmental thing for the, good, for, the, for the good folks at Greenbrier International Incorporated to tell us. It's harsh, isn't it? Isn't it mean? Actually, maybe not, because I've never tried this before. Actually, I have put a mug that you shouldn't have in, the, in there before, and you pull it out, and first thing you notice is it's really way too hot. Like, all over, you know, like even on the, the handle, you're like, Ah! Now, if, if I kept it in for a long time, there's a couple things that might have happened. It could have lost all of its structural integrity. 
And then I would have been wearing the coffee. It wouldn't have had powdered creamer, though, because I have changed. Thank you. It was a long time ago, friends, and East Texas is just not the same kind of coffee culture that we have here. And I love that part of our culture. Uh, but I digress. That do not microwave is simply a statement of reality. The designers of that mug understand what it's designed for and understand what will cause it no longer to function in its intended purpose. And if you keep one of these in the microwave, there's a very good chance it will not be able to function as a mug anymore. And then what's even the point? So they put this lovely law, thou shalt not put this mug in the microwave. Isn't that interesting? Now, not all laws are good laws, but that's a pretty good one, I think. Here's another one. Oh. Come on. Come on. Now, I, I drive a minivan. Yes. 2004 Chevy Venture. Souped up. I have this law on my Chevy Venture, but I've got a bit of a rebel kick in me. So sometimes I think about filling it up with diesel. Because who are they to tell me how to drive my van? Right? Oh, you could take that, or you could, I could go more extreme with it. You know what I really enjoy and what really gets me going? Sriracha. Yeah! This will give a kick. Now the acceleration, I'm sure, will be much better. What would happen? I shudder to think what would happen. Because... My van was not designed to run on diesel or on sriracha, which is good because that's actually a lot more expensive per gallon than unleaded. <laughs> Probably also smell bad too, I'd imagine. Do you see what I'm saying? The law of God and the love of God are the same way. It, 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 if he says something like, well, uh, you know, thou shalt not steal, Maybe it had nothing to do with like, just being arbitrary. People think, I think, God was up with a, with a coin. This is what they were doing on the top of Mount Sinai. Him and Moses were flipping quarters and going, okay, stealing. Heads is in, tails it's out. It's out, Moses. Oh, man. Is that what was happening? Is God being arbitrary going, I say this is good just because I said it and I am God? Maybe not. Maybe it had more to do with this. You see, in the same way that if you put diesel in an unleaded tank, it's not going to function in its designed purpose anymore. It's no longer going to take you from point A to point B, which is the whole purpose of a minivan, and to make everybody jealous because they're so awesome. <laughs> if a society embraces thievery, here's what's going to happen. First of all, trust is going to be broken down big time. Trust. And that's a problem. You know why that's a problem? Because we were designed for a relationship in the same way that my van was designed to take people from point A to point B. And if trust is broken down, then healthy relationship becomes impossible. Stealing does that. 
And it does actually a lot more than that. It has all sorts of, not even just interpersonal relationships, but social relationships. And it ends up having a tremendous cost and strain on society. Let me just tell you about economic implications here. This, this kind of this blew my mind. Uh, in 2010, there was a study done on uh, shoplifting and the cost of shoplifting in America. In 2010, businesses lost 17 billion with a B dollars from shoplifting alone. Isn't that nuts? Now, that, has to get pa- that cost it has to get passed down to consumers. It's the only way. Per household, that added $423 of unnecessary waste to every household budget. Yeah, that's just from shoplifting. Now, if you went beyond that, well, here's the 2012 study talking about personal, that's corporate theft. What about personal theft? Just theft from property, cars, all these, whatever, just individual. $14 billion worth of possessions stolen every year. And if you go beyond that, because we're in the digital age, and if you know how to do some pretty good coding and stuff, you could figure out how to take people's identity. $24 billion. Those three things, corporate, personal, and identity theft alone, those three things, $55 billion. These are round numbers from two different years, but they're roughly the same as, as you go on. $55 billion. That's going to come out to uh, over $1,200 per household per, per year just because people steal. And that's just the cost of because those things are actually taken. That's nothing. Because you haven't even got into theft prevention yet. You think, you think about all the costs, all the things we have to pay for because people steal, even if they don't steal them. Locks on our doors, doors on our, on our houses, locks on our cars, ignition switches, all, all kinds of fences around our yards, cybersecurity. Do you know how much this ends up costing society? And I'm strictly speaking, obviously, about economics. But this is what happens. Things break down and there's an enormous amount of waste. Imagine if we didn't have to pay all that. What, in the, what could we solve? What kind of problems could we solve if people just obeyed this commandment, thou shalt not steal? What kind of injustices could we take care of? What kind of, uh, uh, can you just imagine? Wouldn't that be beautiful? But as a result of stealing, trust is broken down between employees and employers. Trust is broken down between people off the street and people in houses, all of these things. Now we, we have gated communities. We have all kinds of stuff that just separates us because we don't trust one another. And one of the reasons is that. And God, in his wisdom, as the designer of mankind, said, don't go there. Don't steal. Don't put that mug in the microwave. See? We're talking about design requirements here. The love of God and the law of God, same thing. Are you with me? This is what God says. Oh, that they, he says this to Moses, that they, Israel, had such a heart in me that they would fear me and keep my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Do you see his heart behind these commandments? It had nothing to do with somehow getting his cosmic way. It had to do with blessing them. Oh, that they had such a heart in me. If they kept my commandments, it would go well for them. 
such a simple and beautiful thing and a beautiful statement that God is not an arbitrary God. He does things for our good, for our protection. But having said that, make no mistake, these are commandments. They're not life hacks. They're not cool things that you can apply to your society if you want it to get a little better. They are commandments. We can't lose the picture. He really did come down in fire and lightning. Because he really is God. He really is that big. He's so personal and gentle and loving with us, but sometimes he's a raging fire. He spoke galaxies into existence. He can juggle suns in his fingertips. And yet he's your dad. And yet he comes close to you. If you forget the fact that he's your dad, then he looks like a distant tyrant who, who just wants his own way. So we have to be reminded you are a good, good father because somewhere along the line in the holiest movement, that revelation was lost. But you know, you could actually make the opposite mistake too and think that all he is is lovey and gentle. And we cannot lose this that yes, his words, his commands are good for us. They are for our good always. He loves us, but he really is the emperor of the universe. He really is. And this is a hard thing for us to take in as Americans because we don't have an emperor. We, we hold liberty and, and, and autonomy so highly. It's one of our chief values. So to think that God might say something that we might not understand and we still have to go along with what he says because he's God, that rubs against us. And we start talking, well, well I, I mean, okay, that was then. And we start getting into all these kind of conversations. He really is God. And we have to hold on to both sides of this, the goodness and the severity of God. He is not arbitrary, so we do not have to fear his power. But we must have proper reverence for who he is. And that's difficult for us in this day and age. Maybe it isn't for you. I guarantee if it isn't for you, you're probably, you're, you are the exception. You are the exception. It's going to be difficult for me because I know how good he is that I start to take it for granted. I start to take his blessings for granted and his goodness for granted. And I cannot do that. That is not okay. He's kind and faithful, but he's not a pushover. He's a friend, but he's not a buddy. No other gods before me, he says. No other gods before me. If you're an Egyptian, that means don't put Isis and Osiris ahead of him. Don't put Ra ahead of him. If you're a Canaanite, that means don't put Baal or Ashtaroth ahead of him. If you're an American, it means don't put yourself ahead of him. Because that's what we worship here. We worship self. 
Everything screams it out to us. Self-expression, take this way. And our creativity is put on a pedestal. Our desires are put on a pedestal. And there's wonderful, healthy things about this. Don't get me wrong. But there's also terrible things about this when you start to worship it. Preferences, opinions, desires, all of these now we hold sacred. And we're told that if you will go against them somehow, then you're backward. And any God who would tell you to go against something that you want is not loving. That's what our society is telling us. And we need, even, I love my country, guys. I'm a very patriotic American. But this is a problem. This is a serious problem. And we need to recognize it because if we don't recognize it, then it seeps into us more and more and more. Our culture worships self. And we cannot take part in that. And the biggest way we can, we can push against that, actively push against that, is to remember that he's also a consuming fire, that he's also the emperor of all things. Amen. You see, you can take the Ten Commandments and see exactly what this should mean to us today, exactly what he's saying. Our culture glorifies self over all else, but God says, not so fast. See, he says, no other gods By extension, that means you don't get a choice on who your gods are. He just is. It's not your choice. He says no idols. That means don't make, don't deify your own imaginations. He says, honor his name. It's not your mouth. He says, honor the Sabbath. It's not your time you're dealing with. You see? You starting to get the picture? He says, honor your parents. Life is not about your glorification. So what if you boost someone else up over yourself? That's exactly the point. And how necessary is it for us to get that commandment in this generation? He says, don't kill. It's not your life to take. Don't commit adultery. She's not your wife to take. Don't steal, it's not your stuff. Don't lie, it's not your truth. I'm so tired of that phrase, your truth, my truth. There's the truth. Don't covet, not your desires. You see what the Ten Commandments say. They highlight the fact that I'm not a God. The most revelatory truth we can get from scriptures, as Winky Prattney says, is this. God is God, and I'm not. I am definitely not. So God confronts the God of self today, and he tells us to follow him whether or not we understand his purposes or his commands. Some of them are easy to figure out. Others of them, not always. Today our culture throws out these things. Our economics, for example, are based on covetousness, are they not? Our advertising is based on deception. Our youth culture has no understanding of honor for previous generations. Our workaholic culture disregards rest and remembrance. Our sexual liberation culture insists that purity is repression and repression is oppression. That's where we live. Christianity, guys, is a renegade culture. And that's okay. We are in a desert at a mountain, and God calls us to be a joyful, self-sacrificial, contrast community where we put his life-giving words above our fleeting desires. 
where we put others' needs above our own wants, where we embrace our God for all he is, a loving father and a mighty emperor. I'll leave you with this picture from C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right after Aslan the lion has died and with him was Susan and Lucy as an image of Mary and Mary weeping for him and waiting for the dawn. And the dawn comes and they hear a crash and the stone table that Aslan lay on was split in two. And they look up and they see him that he's come back as the Christ figure. And they begin to celebrate with him and dance with him. And here's the picture. Azalan leapt again. A mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautiful velveted paws and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia, and whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. That's the God we serve. Let's stand together. Prayer servant team is going to be in the back. If you want to do business with the Lord this morning, you can see them, you can see me. But I encourage you to be open to what he's whispering to you. If you have any, any other needs as well, bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, we know, we have seen, Lord, your completed revelation of who you are, that you are pure goodness. Lord Jesus, help us to bow to that goodness, even when we don't understand it. We love you, Lord. Amen. 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 Have a wonderful week, guys. Good